0: Part One, Chapter Eleven of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part One, Chapter Eleven. On Christmas Eve, late in the evening, I went into a church. It was my favorite church in Petrograd, rising at the English prospect end of the quay, with its white rounded towers pure and quiet and modest. I had been depressed all day, I had not been well, and the weather was harsh, a bitterly cold driving wind beating down the streets and stroking the ice of the canal into a dull gray color. Christmas seemed to lift into sharper, bitterer irony the ghastly horrors of this endless war. Last Christmas I had been too ill to care, and the Christmas before I had been at the front when the war had been young and full of hope, and I had seen enough nobility and self-sacrifice to be reassured about the true stuff of the human soul. Now all that seemed to be utterly gone— On the one side, my mind was filled with my friends, John Trenchard and Marie Ivanovna. The sacrifice that they had made seemed to be wicked and useless. I had lost altogether that conviction of the continuance and persistence of their souls that I had, for so long, carried with me. They were dead, dead, simply dead. There at the front one had believed in many things, Here, in this frozen and starving town, with every ghost working against every human, there was assurance of nothing, only deep foreboding and an ominous silence. The murder of Rasputin still hung over every head. The first sense of liberty had passed, and now his dirty malicious soul seemed to be watching us all, reminding us that he had not left us, but was waiting for the striking of some vast catastrophe that the friends whom he had left behind him to carry on his work were preparing. It was this sense of moving so desperately and so hopelessly in the dark that was with me. Any chance that there had seemed to be of Russia rising from the war with a free soul appeared now to be utterly gone before our eyes the powers that ruled us were betraying us laughing at us selling us and we did not know who was our enemy who our friend whom to believe of whom to take counsel peculation and lying and the basest intrigue was on every side of us hunger for which there was no necessity want in a land packed with everything i believe that there may have been very well another side to the picture but at that time we could not see we did not wish to see we were blindfolded men i entered the church and found that the service was over i passed through the aisle into the little rounded cup of dark and gold where the altars were here there were still collected a company of people kneeling some of them in front of the candles Others standing there, motionless like statues, their hands folded, gazing before them. The candles flung a mist of dim embroidery upon the walls, and within the mist the dark figures of the priest moved to and fro. An old priest with long white hair was standing behind a desk close to me, and reading a long prayer in an unswerving monotonous voice, There was the scent of candles and cold stone and hot human breath in the little place. The tawdry gilt of the icons glittered in the candlelight, and an echo of the cold wind creeping up the long dark aisle blew the light about so that the gilt was like flashing, piercing eyes. I wrapped my Shuba closely about me and stood there lost in a hazy, indefinite dream. I was comforted and touched by the placid, mild, kindly faces of those standing near me. No evil here, I thought. Only ignorance, and for that others are responsible. I was lost in my dream, and I did not know of what I was dreaming. The priest's voice went on, and the lights flickered, and it was as though someone, a long way off, was trying to give me a message that it was important that I should hear— important for myself and for others. There came over me, whence I know not, a sudden conviction of the fearful power of evil, a sudden realization, as though I had been shown something, a scene or a picture or writing, which had brought this home to me. The lights seemed to darken, the priest's figure faded, and I felt as though the message that someone had been trying to deliver to me had been withdrawn I waited a moment, looking about me in a bewildered fashion, as though I had, in reality, just woken from sleep. Then I left the church. Outside, the cold air was intense. I walked to the end of the quay and leaned on the stone parapet. The neva seemed vast, like a huge, white, impending shadow. It swept in a colossal wave of frozen ice out to the far horizon. Where tiny twinkling lights met it and closed it in. The bridges that crossed it held forth their lights, and there were the gleams, like travelling stars, of the passing trams, but all these were utterly insignificant against the vast body of the contemptuous ice. On the farther shore, the buildings rose in a thin, tapering line looking as though they had been made of black tissue paper against the solid weight of the cold stony sky. The Peter and Paul fortress, the towers of the Mohammedan mosque, were thin, immaterial, ghostly, and the whole line of the town was simply a black penciled shadow against the ice, smoke that might be scattered with one heave of the force of the river. The Neva was silent, But beneath that silence beat what force and power, what contempt and scorn, what silent purposes. I saw then near me, and gazing like myself, on to the river, the tall, broad figure of a peasant standing without movement, black against the sky. He seemed to dominate the scene, to be stronger and more contemptuous than the ice itself, but also to be in sympathy with it. I made some movement, and he turned and looked at me. He was a fine man, with a black beard and noble carriage. He passed down the quay, and I turned towards home. End of part one, chapter eleven.